Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Welcome to Bits of Gold, episode 118. Today's episode is all about how to break through into your dream field and lessons from building New York City's high-profile and iconic restaurants. Welcome back to another episode of the Bits of Gold podcast. If you're new here, first off, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Second, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. More subscribers help attract more amazing guests to help better serve you with amazing content on how to live with purpose. Now let's get to it. Breaking into some industries can be tough. There isn't always such a clear path. While it may be daunting, sometimes you just need to get into the game to start to have an opportunity. Sometimes you have to create your own path and opportunity will present itself. Oftentimes, if you work in an industry for long enough and you stay and you show up every day as your best self, day in and day out, you will eventually have choices to make in any given field. I truly believe that. With consistency and hard work, doors will always open. Now, obviously along the way, sacrifices have to be made, but if that's really what you want, it's worth it and it's possible. On today's episode, I'm so excited to share Mark Straussman's story. Mark Straussman is a classically European-trained chef who recently opened his new restaurant, Mark's Off Madison, at 41 Madison Ave in New York City. Straussman is known for creating the legendary restaurant Fred at Barney's New York at Barney's flagship store. He subsequently developed Satellite Fred's in Chicago, LA, and in Barney's downtown New York location. In addition, he owned the groundbreaking Italian restaurant an agriturismo in New York Hudson's Valley, and he partnered to create and manage Coco Pazzo in New York City and Sapor de Mer in East Hampton. Mark's passion project in recent years is to bring back the traditional handmade New York bagel. His Straussie's bagel, which Sirius Eats dubbed New York's best bagel, is featured at Mark's Off Madison, and let me tell you, it is amazingly delicious. He is also the author of the Fred's at Barney's New York cookbook, which Publishers Weekly calls a wonderful peek inside the popular restaurant. In addition, he's the author of the James Beard Award nominated Two Meatballs in the Italian Kitchen and the Campania Table. He's written for Yahoo, the HuffPost, and consults widely within the food and beverage industry. One of the things that absolutely fascinated me about this episode was that Mark went to an intensive bread making course prior to launching with his own bagel. It was humbling and inspiring to hear a world renowned chef and restauranteur invest money, time, energy, into improving his skills as a chef, even after achieving so much and being at the level that he was at. For me, this really emphasized the power of never stop learning, the importance of never stop growing and investing in yourself to always show up to be the best version of yourself. And it certainly paid off because his bagel that you can get at Mark's of Madison is absolutely incredible. So with that, let's welcome Mark to the show. All right, Mark, welcome to the Bits of Gold podcast. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. It's exciting. Yeah, I am super stoked to have you on. You are actually the first chef that we are having on the show. Oh, cool. So I'm extremely excited to capture your story, you know, how you've gone about passionately building your life and career. And uh, my wife told me and made sure to let you know that we love your spot. We love your restaurant and we come a good amount. And she's like, I'm so jealous you get to spend a couple of minutes with you today. Oh, that's great. Oh, very excited. Thank you. You know, we love all the support. It's one thing I've learned in my life is never take anything for granted, you know, never take support for granted. 
and you know just just understand that you know everyone is a customer and you just have to be the diplomat as the chef mm. you know no it's yeah. very cool one of the things i also love about your your restaurant the window that you see they, how you can see into where the magic happens the the bread being baked, right. the pizzas being made, the bagels being made. It shows you just how passionate everyone is in there making the food. Yeah, I mean, it, it's also, you know, this whole thing about being somewhat experiential, which is, you know, some of these words, you hear these buzzwords kind of are, you know, you, they're almost like anti what the meaning is. But the fact is, is that people want to see. People are voyeurs. People people love watching. And you're eating out. It's entertaining. It's a form of entertainment. That's nothing new. So opening it up and letting people see the bakery, the, the baking of the bread, the smell, the aromas, it's all sensual. It's all everything that as human beings we need and we want, you know, mm-hmm. is through this visual window into the restaurant, into the kitchen. That was all very intentional in the design. Absolutely. It totally was. You know, the open kitchen kind of started in California. It started at Stars back in San Francisco. And nobody's ever stopped since because it's so fun to watch. It's so cool. It's something, Mm. you know, when I bring kids into the kitchen sometimes, I take them and I let them see the stock pot that they can almost fit in because nobody understands (laughs) You know, you're at home, you see a pan, you see a pot. Then you come to the restaurant and you see something that's larger than life. It's like Mm. when you go to the zoo and you see the elephants in a sense. And you see them up close. You're like, oh my, you know, it's like, or a giraffe. It's something completely different than a pet that you have at home. And it just intrigues people. And if you can deliver with the product, it makes it even better. Mm. Let's just go backwards to the beginning of your story. Did you know you you always wanted to be a chef? No, I I think that, you know, these chefs that, you know, that young chef, the one, I don't know his name, the one who's like started at 15 and 16, that's a product of, of media, unfortunately, of Instagram and everything. I mean, no, I first thought I wanted to, you know, I was like everyone. First I started, I wanted to be a baseball player like everyone else and then a football player. And then when I realized that's not going to happen, I wanted to go into media. And then eventually, I got my first job working at, believe it or not, at Queens College, where I was somewhat attending, and at the Ratskeller, which is the pub. And, you know, I just started to thrive. And then I realized, okay, maybe there's something here. You know, I seem to enjoy that more than going to class. You know, we catered for the whole college, for all of the faculty and the administration. And, you know, then I won the head of food service at the time, gave me and my girlfriend at the time a pair of tickets to go to the New York City restaurant show, which was, believe it or not, how old I am. It was at Columbus Circle because that that was way before the Javits Center was ever built. And I went to that and I realized there were schools for it. So I ended up changing and going to New York City community college at the time, which is now New York City Tech. I have a degree in hotel management. And then when I was there, I was going at night. And by that point, I started working in kitchens. This is 1980, 1981. And I saw a little thing on a bulletin board, a three-month apprenticeship in Germany. Signed up for it, got it, 
And four years later, I came back a European trained chef. And then, you know, that's a story unto itself. You know, it's like learning and I, I have, I still use them today. I, every night I wrote in a diary, recipes, what we did that day. And, you know, I still use them today. Mm. The first time like you, you were in the kitchen and you started cooking, did you feel some sort of draw to the art of cooking? Did you have some special feeling where you said, wow, this is, this is what I want to commit my life to? Other than, you know, these, these childhood dreams of being a baseball player, a basketball player, etc. Right. Well, but basically, you know, some of it is that I was dyslexic, mm. which I didn't really know. You know, as I say now to people, the only time in school that I was really comfortable and excelled was at lunch. You know, it was the social aspect of it. So once I started flipping hamburgers at the back of the Ratskeller and taking pizza crusts and making pizza, which we did at the time because it was a college, I started to get joy in what I did working. And then once I realized that this was an industry, that's when it kind of happened. You know, anyone who tells you they woke up one day and they, you know, and they want to found their calling. I mean, I'm not disputing it, but, you know, I, that's very few. It's, it's a metamorphosis. It takes time. You know, you learn. I was 19, 20, 21. I was young. What did I know? I grew up in Queens. I grew up in a city housing project. Mm. I mean, what, what did I know of the world? I mean, I, you know, I did grow up in New York City, so that made me a little more worldly than most people my age. But still, this was, yeah, 1980, 1979, you know, and it was... That was like when Freddie Laker was starting and people were starting to be able to go to Europe very inexpensively. Mm. You know, it was kind of the beginning of it all. The revolution of air travel and globalization in a sense, I guess. Obviously now, you know, with social media, food has become such a thing where phone eats first for a lot of people. Right. How has that been seeing that evolve in in your space as, as a chef, has that been something that's like, I'm curious what that's been like for, for you as a chef? Well, especially someone, you know, I always say I was alive during the analog world. <laughs> you know, listen, John Goodfriend, who used to run Goldman Sachs, I think he wrote, you know, he was in Barbarians at the Gate. And he was also a customer of mine. He, he had an expression, let trend be your friend. Mm. And I learned that about 30 years ago, that expression. And I was always... There's something to that. So when social media started, got really, I guess, which is almost 10, 15 years ago, it seemed like you just got to do it. You know, if you want to stay relevant, especially at someone my age, okay, you can't poo-poo anything, mm. okay, as long as it's moralistically correct. Mm. That makes sense. You can't. and. I have a whole friend group of friends who I consider dinosaurs. <laughs> oh, I don't do this. Oh, I don't, I'm not on this. Why? If you're working today, why are you not on Facebook? Mm. Why are you not on Instagram? I mean, forget about how you feel about it personally and politically. That's how people find you, okay? That is a method, whether you like it or not, of how the world find you and there's nothing you can do about it you just got to deal with it yeah do i like open table and resi no i hate them <laughs> why would i like somebody 
who takes money from me. But people want to use them to make reservations. So there's nothing I can do. Yeah. So embrace it. You know what I'm saying? Don't fight it. That's a great point. And, you know, maybe people don't realize it is that it also makes you look like a curmudgeon. Yeah. And you don't want to be. You know, you're, first of all, I'm in the service industry. Okay, I'm in the hospitality business. So the word curmudgeon and hospitality are oxymorons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's that's a great point. I think a lot of people definitely should be embracing social media. And and you do it quite well. You know, you have uh you post a lot of great content of of all the all the food that you guys are making. Yeah. I mean, the part that I don't love of social media is when people I like my children are adults. Mm. And they're not in my social media, even my personal social media. And I wouldn't really do that too much. I wouldn't do it at all with my children in general. I don't understand people who have their children all over. Look, if it's private, that's a different story. But I mean, some of these bloggers with their kids, I I just think it's, I don't know, where's the boundaries? I mean, everything needs boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. And you need to operate within those boundaries. And you just, that's it. You have to accept it. It's like the Dalai Lama. Accept and then do. Do not try to manipulate everything. Mm. Makes a lot of sense. So when you came back here from being overseas, what did you go to next? What was the next step in your journey? Well, you know, it's funny. I come back from overseas thinking I was the hottest thing in the world, obviously, because at my point, I was one of the only Americans that really went to Europe. There were a handful of others. What was that like? Well, in being in Europe or coming back? I guess first being in Europe. Well, you know, it's always nice to be the, the center of attention, right? Right? Hey, everybody wants to talk with the American. Everybody wants to hang out with the American. That was great. Everybody was great. The Europeans were great in the kitchen. And it's because I worked hard. It's because I never said no. I was willing to. I was there to work. I wasn't there to have a day off. Yeah. And, you know, I was young also at the time. So I could do that. You know, especially the two years I spent in Germany, the Germans really love people who work hard. So I was very well accepted. But when I came home, I kind of hit a wall. And then I realized that people who were hiring me except owners for restaurants kind of were a little, like somebody once said to me, and, you know, it was very nice of him, and we had been friends for a long time after this, was, Mark, I'm not going to hire you. You're going to take my job. You have better references than I do. Because <laughs> I was looking for a sous chef job at the time. So then I realized, okay, let's go be a chef. And then, you know, I kind of worked my way from the first restaurant that I was a chef at, and then, you know, eventually to getting my own restaurant which was always always something I wanted to do. You know, because in, in Europe, you could, the fine food is also in hotels. In America, it is a bit now, but certainly when I came back in 1986, it was not. Mm. So what was the first, the first restaurant that you started on your own? On my own? Yeah. Was Campania. That was in 1993. Got it. Can you talk a little bit about opening that first restaurant and what that was like? Well, you know, it was basically, you know, first of all, I had to go raise money. So I had been the chef of Coco Pazzo in New York, which was on 74th and Madison at the time. It's with my ex-partner, Pino Luongo. So, you know, there were a lot of people in the dining room who were constantly, you know, we love you, we love you, we love you. So, you know, I got one of my customers who helped me put together a business plan and... 
I came up, obviously, you know, he put the business plan together. I put up with Campania, what I wanted to do, how I wanted it, it to look and everything. And I went around and back in 1993, you could raise $700,000 and open a restaurant in New York City. Right now, you can barely do it for $4 million. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. And I'm talking both turnkey operations where you're going in where it was a restaurant before that. Okay. Okay? So on par and on level. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's wild. Crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think most people don't think about that when they think about restaurant opening up necessarily the, the cost and also you, they might just see the, the chef or see that element of it and say, oh, this person's a great chef and they're going to open up this restaurant, but not necessarily the business piece that comes with it. That has always been for me also an issue too is, you know, it's like they say about your brain. If you excel in one part of your brain, there's always a little deficiency in the other. And very rarely, you know, that's why a lot of chefs have business partners. Yeah. But, you know, the whole thing with partnership is making sure everyone understands where they are in the ocean, the pecking order, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly what kind of size fish you are. But, you know, I mean, the other thing that I tell people that's really important is, you know, just don't look at my side of the industry, which is the fine dining, the expensive, the chef, uh, you know, eh, really, you know, romantic. You know, listen, it takes the same amount of energy to make a good tuna fish sandwich as it does to make a bad one. And people love tuna fish sandwiches in New York City. So there's nothing like a great deli, a great bakery, you know, even a great hot dog stand. Look, everyone's upset that great papaya is closing. Yeah. What was it like to be the chef of Fred's at Barney's? You know, it's funny. I appreciated it every day. I loved it. Uh, That's why I was there. And also, I was hired right after they went bankrupt the first time in 1996. So I was basically hired by the original owners, the original family, the Pressmans. Mm. It's funny. It was a double-edged sword. Everyone in the industry hated me because the place was packed and it had the greatest clientele. Listen, I will never have a restaurant that had a clientele like that ever again. That was a perfect storm, that place. It was in one of the most unique and beautiful emporiums of clothing, of home goods, just really, it's the most beautiful emporium of anything that nobody really needs. (laughs) And that's what people love, okay? You always want to go look at something that you don't need. Mm. Because if you need it, you just go get it. Mm. And I was in this store, was on Madison and 60th and 61st, which is the epicenter in New York. You're around the greatest hotels in the world. And it was the greatest store in the world for both men and women. And we had celebrities and sports figures and icons of business. I mean, just giants. The clientele was, it was just unbelievable. I'm lucky. I'm thrilled. We turned it into an institution. And the New York Times in 2013 actually called it an institution. That's amazing. Is preparing food in that type of environment, is that extremely stressful? Or has that just become like another day's work because you become accustomed to working at that level? You know what it is? You don't don't read your own press. Don't drink your own Kool-Aid. Don't think about it. What really made Fred's Fred's was the fact that it was the best restaurant ever in any kind of institution. Mm. That, you know, whether it be a, a museum, a store, or whatever it is, it was the epitome. And I did that. When I, I had Campania, 
And then when the Pressmans came to me to open Fred's in 96, I modeled the food after the Brown Derby in L.A., the Ivy in L.A., you know, where it was all about chopped salads. It was all about lunch. It was all about feeding movie stars and moguls. And then I used my vast European classical training to make it into this, to deliver that kind of food. Mm. where, you know, we made dressings from scratch. The salads were all composed and it changed and there was seasonal food. And you could go in there and you could have truffles like if you were in Le Cirque and you could have glutamere if you were in the south of France. And at night we did a bouillabaisse like if you were at Tate 2 in, in Cap Antibes or Joan Le Pen is where it is. I don't want to be corrected by <laughs> someone. But what I realized is Barney's sold world-class clothing. We needed world-class food. Mm. And it worked, you know? And all I did was go in every day to try to make sure that it was consistent. Look, you eat out. Yeah. Yes, you would love to go and have a meal that you could just run around and tell everyone, oh my God, this is the greatest thing that I've ever had. But what you really crave is consistency. You want it when you go when you go out to eat in restaurant A on a Monday and you go back on Friday, you don't want it to vary. Mm. You want it to be what exactly what you remember, especially if you're bringing someone else to show them. You want it to deliver. <laughs> right. But consistency. Yeah. That's the most important. One of the things that was written about the 21 Club back in the day when it was really the 21 Club was it was consistently mediocre, mm. <laughs> but it was consistent. Yeah. And everybody knew how to navigate it. Mm. Like you would hear people say, well, you go there. If you want the hamburger medium rare, order it rare. Mm. Got it. Right. You know, I mean, I'm being facetious, but I'm not. Yeah. yeah. Because people love the room. They love the excitement. And what they were able to do at the 21 Club was create consistency. That makes a lot of sense. What led to Fred's closing down? It was just that Barney's went out? Yeah, pretty much. What was that like? Because it's like, on one hand, you know, you're sort of at the top of the game there. This was a slow drip, right? It really was. Nobody was surprised. Disappointed, yes. Surprised, no. And basically, it, it was horrible. It's horrible. Look, obviously, I survived and I came out the end much better. But, you know, you're more worried about your staff, you know, people who have young kids and, you know, or living paycheck. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To paycheck. Remember my industry, as most people in the service industry and a lot of other industries are living paycheck to paycheck. It was gross mismanagement, unfortunately. I have nothing against any industry, but hedge fund investment bankers are not merchants. Mm. They're polar opposite and they had no idea how to run it. And investment bankers are not departments of human resource either. Yeah. Because when, you know, listen, they're like, I'll abuse you, I'll scream at you, but I'll pay you $2 million. <laughs> listen, someone gives me $2 million, scream at me, you know, yell at me. It's fine. I got no problem. <laughs> as long as the check clears. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So after Fred's closes down, how did Mark's off Madison come about? Well, Mark's off Madison was planned and the actually the lease was signed before Fred's close. I was at, at a certain point, I don't want to say I was getting bored, but there was nothing more I could do. Mm. Because every time I changed something, people yelled at me. Mm. Why are you taking that off the menu? And I went to, ma'am, it's lasagna. It's 400 degrees outside. <laughs> okay. We'll bring it back in the fall. She looks me square in the face, this woman. She goes, Mark, in case you haven't realized, your restaurant's air conditioned. <laughs> that was it. I knew it was it. Then I realized, okay, dude, you're stuck. If you want to do something else, if you want your creative juices to flow, you got to find another outlet because it's not what I believe in as a chef, as a restaurateur. And as a human being is not to disappoint people. Mm. Give this lady lasagna at Fred's. Go downtown and open up a restaurant. You go to the farmer's market and make whatever you want, Mark. That's really how it came about. So you signed this lease ahead of time. And yeah, take me through opening up Mark's of Madison, making that menu, making the experience exactly what you wanted it to be. I'm curious how what that journey was like for you. Very up and down because... While we were doing it, I went through the closing of Barney's and the beginning of COVID. Yeah. You guys opened like... Right in COVID. Right in COVID. Yeah. We know nothing other than COVID still. Wow. That's that's I mean, wild. in a sense, you know, because nobody's in the offices. So whether COVID is around or not, whether, you, you know, where, you've, where you sit on that political fence. But the reality is people aren't in offices. The world has changed and now we're building a new world. Mm. And you're a new and you know a new economy. Originally, it was I had spent a lot of time in L.A. because there was Fred's L.A. Right there was Beverly Hills, and I was enamored by what was going on there with these all-day restaurants. Mm. Because Fred's was an all-day restaurant in a sense, and you know it just seemed like you know I went to this place in Venice, just as Rose Cafe, and it had all of this openness and, you know, you could watch and you could see. And it was just bringing things down to a more casual level. Not the food, but the experience, the dining. Mm. Look, you know, when I started Barney's, it was 1996. Yeah. All right. You know, I was a different, I was a younger man. I was the the center, you know, and when I left... I was the elder statesman, in mm. a sense. So it didn't matter what I liked. I would just accept what is the next generation of client want. And it seemed to me what was going on in L.A. was it. It really was. What was going on in, you know, what, what they were doing at Tartine, also in San Francisco. 
What I don't love about places like Tartine is the way the rigidness of the way in which they treat the customer. Mm, I've never been there. Let me explain something to you. You don't need to be lucky enough to eat in my restaurant. <laughs> Thank you for eating in my restaurant. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and that's Tartine in San Francisco. That's a lot of San Francisco. Not so much in L.A., but really just like, you know, it's like a Mecca. This is what we do. It's elitism. Okay. Which is what I despise because that's so unhospitable. Mm, I like it. Yeah, yeah. When you created Marks of Madison, though, what was the thing that you were hoping to achieve or in terms of the vibe, the creation? I'm just curious around the intentionality behind sure. rebuilding things on, on your terms. Well, first of all, I love the look of Fred's, okay? It was done in the international style. It lasted for 20 years with very little renovation. In fact, nobody even wanted it renovated, you know, other than painting the walls and, you know, filling in the cracks and buying new furniture every now and then. So it was this international style. An architect tells you what, you know, what's the benchmark for international style, and it's the UN building, right? It's this clean lines, crisp. So I wanted that. I wanted people to feel that it was an extension of Fred's a little bit because that's what I was known for. I mean, Campania was a very rustic looking restaurant. It had wood beams on it. It looked like a Tuscan farmhouse inside. Mm. And I didn't want that. That was a different time in my life. And it was also, frankly, not what I was known for. So we went to the same architects that did original Fred's, David and Evelyn Sheffer, Sheffer Design. And together we did that. And then I realized that I got one more shot. I wanted this to be my greatest hit store. I called it Act 3. Mm. Act 1 being Europe. Act 2 being, you know, Fred's, Campania, Coco Pazzo. And this was going to be Act 3. And it is Act 3. You know, and that Act 3, usually in a play, is, you know, the act where everything comes together, right? Where it's either a good play or a bad play, right? Yeah. You know, is the last act. So I wanted to be able to do it one more time, everything. So that's where I decided to meld Jewish and Italian. Mm, what a combo. Well, it's New York, man. <laughs> yeah. When I grew up, I grew up in a city housing project. There were two-bedroom apartments. There were four apartments on the floor. Two one-bedrooms, which were older people. And then there were two families on my floor. My family, which was Jewish, and the other family at the other end of the hall was Italian. So when you open the elevated door, the smells were intoxicated. <laughs> and that, to me, is New York dining, okay? Yeah. Is Italian and Jewish. Mm. I mean, obviously, there's much more. It's a melting pot. You know, we love Asian food and I'm very, you know, I love Asian influences. You know, I love everything that's good, that's exciting. I love going out to Indian food on my day off. You know, I'm a chef. Yeah. You know, listen, when you go to France, you can find almost any kind of restaurant in France. There's barbecue restaurant, a Cajun restaurant in Paris. Okay. The French are very open to food and good food. And so are New Yorkers, yeah. really. I wanted to be able... To, you know, do my own thing and be able to create food from my childhood. You know, and the bagels came about in a different, a very interesting way, okay? Yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb here. So in 2007 or something, one of my kids comes home and he's like eating this blueberry bagel or some kind of bagel. I don't know, it was blueberry. 
there's a little discrepancy when I tell the story, but you know, I also know, yes, I'm dyslexic, but the memory's not so bad. They're like, dad, do you like this? And I actually slipped and I said, that's disgusting. <laughs> he was like taken back and I was like, no, 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 no. You know what? Let me show you what a good bagel is <laughs> because I felt bad. I mean, he was like, you know, you can see it in his face. I mean, you don't want to do that to your child. You're like, yeah, oh, yeah. my God, you know, you know, it's like I'm such a bad parent. My mother sees that. She'll scream at me. <laughs> so the bagel quest started and I found out that King Arthur had all these professional classes and I basically ended up, I must have taken all of them. One or two I've taken twice. Mm. You know, I had baking classes, you know, when I went to hotel school and I had baking at, you know, every hotel I worked at had the whole thing, but I wasn't in that part. So I knew it. So it was a great idea to come back and there were professional classes and I decided to work on bagels. And then I realized that there's not a decent bagel in New York. There are some now, much more so. But when I was taught in 2007 and 2008, there were balloons with holes in them. <laughs> Got it. So you actually went to a baking school to start learning the art of bagel making. Bread making. Bread making. See, that's another thing people don't understand. Bagels are bread, dude. You got to <laughs> learn how to make bread, okay? You have to understand yeast. You have to understand science. And let me tell you, there's not a decent bagel in this town. Very mm. few. Really. And I see this by people who are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s that taste them and say, wow, this is a bagel when I was a kid. Mm. Bagels have, are extinct. Bagels became extinct. We're bringing them back now. Yeah, They're that, extinct. We love the bagel basket when, when you get it in, in the restaurant. Right. Right. <laughs> but it's different than everyone else's bagel. Yeah. It's interesting to hear. So, so you actually went back to baking school like later on in your career to, to learn the art of, of bread making. Well, I mean, there were week classes, weekend classes, you know, it's like, you know, professional classes, like people that go back and have, you know, you know, like Harvard gives professional classes, right? It's two weeks or something. It's not like I didn't go quit my job and go back. So yeah, of course, you know, it was fun. Plus, I enjoyed it. It was fun. It's in Vermont. It's gorgeous up there. You know, you go in the winter, you can ski, you go in the summer. It was an enjoyment. Then I became a passion. I kind of tell people that's, you know, I sold my, I used to have a motorcycle. So I sold that, got rid of that. And my, um, my new midlife crisis was bread baking, becoming a bread baker. <laughs> Much safer than a motorcycle. Absolutely. So did you add bagels to the menu? At Fred's, we did. Okay, okay. Only on the weekend. Got it. Only on the weekend. And Serious Eats called it the best bagel in New York. Wow. They would have said, you're not going to believe where it was. And that was... Ed Levine, when he was at Serious Eats at the time, yeah, he's no longer there. How did that feel when you got that? When you got that in writing, that was pretty cool, man. You know, it's like, yeah, listen, I knew it, but you know, it's not a good idea to say that. You know, it's like, you know, be nice. It's not hospitable, and uh, you know, it was great. It was great to see, you know, and yeah, listen, people loved them on the weekends, and we only did them on the weekends. I still believe you should only eat bagels on the weekends. Otherwise, you're going to look like a bagel. <laughs> you know, it's you know, it's carbohydrate. Shouldn't eat bagel every morning for breakfast. It's not, you know, especially as you get older. Yeah, yeah. What do you think makes a great bagel? A great baker, great flour, and using great ingredient and doing and following the correct method of how long you proof it, how long it is fermented 
how long you boil it, what kind of water you boil it in with malt in it. And it's just, you know, it's every process Mm. is what makes a great product. So you mentioned this is part three. As you think through your life through part three, what were the key things that you were thinking about to do part three with the most intention and and like the most purpose in your life? Was to follow the European model of it being equivalent to three-star Michelin Mm. chef, which is make everything in-house, best ingredients, and, you know, handled correctly with great technique. I'm just not someone who likes tweezers. Mm. I don't need to, you know, have 17 people make a plate like Maximo Butero (laughs) or whatever his name. (laughs) <laughs> what would you say is the hardest part about being in in your business the fact that you're working when everyone else isn't mm. that's a problem i mean it's really a problem when you're trying to raise a family and have a normal life and got to sacrifice you know, a lot yeah i mean and the family sacrifices and stuff and you know everyone says oh you're in the, can you name me a business that's easy i'm not sure there are that many especially right now yeah. I mean, I'm not saying, look, being in the restaurant business is hard, but being in a lot of businesses is hard. Anything that you're dealing with the general public and you're dealing with a front door that opens to the outside, street level, it creates, it adds a, an intensity level that's different when your office is on the 18th floor. Mm. What would be your, your advice to someone who is in the industry, one day wants to own a restaurant? Do something in in the hospitality restaurant industry. What would be your advice to them? Go work for someone you want to be. Look for someone you want to be. Nobody does it by themselves. You've got to go work for people who are great. And they will teach you how to be great by just being there and observing. And you will get why people come there. Mm. Like in Fred's. Everyone got why people come there, because it was the cones of french fries coming out, the bowls of salads. Everyone got the cool, the excitement. You know, it's like Apple, the computer company. It's a cool, it's an excitement. That's what people want. You know, what makes people want something? Mm. Creating that want. Along the way, you know, you mentioned like the sacrifice that that it's taken to get to where you are in your career. And obviously, you know, early on in in your career, you're just going to get started in in that industry. It's not necessarily the most lucrative, right? It's it's really a labor of love. So like, how did you navigate that early on? Was money always an afterthought? I'm curious how you balanced your desire to one day start a family, put food on the table, and maybe the stress that comes along with, I want to be in this industry, but it's very hard to thrive financially long-term, things things of that nature, things that might come into someone's head as it relates to being in the industry. Like how, you know, I think maybe a lot of people who want to be in that industry, they might have jobs maybe that are more corporate where they're maybe very well-paying jobs and they say, I really love food. I want to be in the hospitality industry, but I got to leave some money on the table to do what I really love. Unfortunately, I didn't do it that way. It's a good, the best way to be in the hospitality industry is start when you're 19, 20 years old. Mm. When you have no expenses, you have no family. And I never took a job for money Mm. until I got older. Never. I always wanted to say, I want to work here. I want to work for this guy. I want to work in this kitchen. 
I want to work in this environment. And that's what I tell young people today. Don't go for the money. The money will come. Mm. Go for the experience. Go to work. If you're an architect, you want to work with the greatest architects ever and get paid nothing and find out why is this the greatest architect? Everybody starts with a lead pencil and a piece of paper. Mm. What makes him? Paul Bocuse had the greatest saying, everyone starts with water. (laughs) His soup better than the other guy's soup. Mm. And it's true. Why? And that's what you need to learn. So you think you just need to be willing to sacrifice? Well, you need to learn. You know, travel, get off your backside, go do something that's maybe not fun. Yeah. You know, look, people who want second careers, I have a tremendous amount of respect for. I do. And, you know, they need to do the same thing. They need to do the same thing, you know, is to go and do it and try to do it on the weekend in the beginning. You know, don't you work for an insurance company? I mean, don't quit your job. You know, work in a a restaurant on Friday and Saturday night. A lot of restaurants around this country, even in the city, need more people on the weekend than they do during the week. You know, mm. we love sometimes, we love people who want to work on the weekend as long as they come every weekend. Yeah, yeah. Make sure that that's what you want to do because you like to cook at home. That has nothing to do with my business. <laughs> nothing. Okay. Do a lot of people think that, you think? Absolutely. All the time. Obviously, they're very different. But what would you say is like the biggest misconception or why, you know, why would people even equate the two as the same? Here's what I tell you to do tonight. Go invite three other people over to dinner and make four different dishes and get it on the table the same time when it's hot and cook correctly. And then you'll have to see whether you like to be in the restaurant business. Mm, That's good advice. Okay. You have four burners at home, right? Yeah. So you can do four frying pans. So make four, four different dishes. Make an omelet for someone. Make a salmon for another. Whatever it is. And then you'll realize, oh, my God, this is not making dinner. Okay. <laughs> What's the thing you love You love most about being in your business? I love that. You like that? Exactly what I, I love chaos. Mm. I thrive on it. Mm. The more chaotic, the better, to an extent. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. It's like, you know, there are many times we turn around at the end of the night and say, don't try this at home. Mm. <laughs> What's yeah. your favorite dish on, on your menu? You know, and I, this is my favorite expression. It's like children. You can't have a favorite. Mm. All right. Listen, it's summertime. I love the heirloom tomatoes. We had 10.6 million views on the lasagna. I'm madly in love with the lasagna. And then I'm always looking for the next lasagna. Mm. You have to have that passion for everything because it's available to the public. Yeah. You know, you never want someone to say, yeah, I didn't like it. Yeah, I was like, yeah, we were going to take it off. We didn't really like it. You know, it's someone's paying full price, man. I love the, the Jewish boy from Queens. That's me. Oh, yeah, that's one of the best sandwiches I've ever had. That's me. I used to eat that all the time. <laughs> you know, I always say, here's, you live in a Jewish household and it's eat, darling, eat, darling. <laughs> and then you become, a, you know, then all of a sudden you go to have to get a suit for your bar mitzvah and, they, and the tailor says... Ma'am, he's he's a husky. <laughs> and then it's don't eat darling. Don't eat darling. So yeah, I think you can appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Or at least with your last name. Say, you know, you know where the darling comes from, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I've been there many times in my life. Right. And so when my father showed me that you could mix 
ketchup and mayonnaise together, my life was never the same. <laughs> Ever the same. I was never the same after that. It's a great it was Russian combo. dressing. Hey, I was like, you can do that? I was like nine years old. I never thought you could do that. Wow. You know, and then realize what came about for it. And the idea was to make the, and I used to eat, I used to go to the host deli in Casino Boulevard and I would order the roast turkey with coleslaw. Mm. You know, it was like, I was always a contrarian. Mm. So everyone's, you like pastrami, you like coleslaw. I like turkey. Mm. That's a great sandwich. Do you have a favorite restaurant or that's like your must to in, in Manhattan? Well, you know, I love going to a story at a Taverna Calacatus, although I haven't been there in a while. Mm. We used to love going out there. We like, you know, it's like, I love going to find like holes in a wall. You know, we like going out to like Rosedale and, you know, and getting halal food and stuff like that. I mean, of course, I mean, I love, you know, what's it not to love? There's some great restaurants. There's tons of great restaurants in New York. But, you know, I spent six days, five and a half days in a restaurant. Do I want to go sit at a dining room table? (laughs) <laughs> you know, fine dining. You know, I, I want I want to do stuff that's more fun. Yeah, it makes complete sense. We can start to wrap this one up, Mark. I really appreciate sure. you coming on the show today. Your restaurant is Mark's Off Madison. Where can people connect with you if they want to follow along your Instagram or come by the restaurant? Well, at Mark's Off Madison, hashtag or at Mark's Off Madison or at Chef Mark Straussman. The restaurant's at 41 Madison on the corner of 26th Street. We're online at marksoffmadison.com. We're wired. You can see us. You know, come visit us. Just ask for me. I'll be either in the back or out in the front or out in the outdoor cafe hanging out. You know, right now in this environment, to get people to come into work every day, I can't be on the beach. Mm. I need to be there. Mm. Well, Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show today and sharing all your bits of gold. Oh, my pleasure, man. Thank you. I'll see you soon. All right. You bet. All the links for this episode can be found in the show notes. If you found something from this episode inspiring, moving, impactful, I want to hear from you. Shoot me a message. You can find me on Instagram at Dan Lev Goldberg. Finally, if you can please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would mean the world. It really helps with growing the show. That's all for today. Thanks for living with purpose today and every day, and I'll see you next time. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.